Okay, so we are continuing with our study of the book of Haggai, just a small two-chapter book. For those uh, who weren't here last week, just a very brief recap. Haggai is one of three post-exile prophets. By post-exile, we're referring to that period of time after Israel had gone away in captivity to Babylon, and then 70 years later had returned to the land, although only 50,000 or so had actually returned to Israel. Zechariah is another one, and uh, Malachi the third of those post-exile prophets as we refer to them. Haggai's name means my festival, and a festival to us is a short celebration. Uh, it's a rather fitting name because he has such a short prophetic career. Compared to other prophets in scripture, just four months really is all we see of this prophet, prophet Haggai. But he has a profound effect on the nation. You see, he comes onto the scene at the right time and in the right place. God had engineered this with incredible precision as we were looking last week. And again, this is the the, um, timeline, if you like, of history, starting from creation. Genesis covers most of the Old Testament in terms of time. Um, and then the other books of the Old Testament are crammed into this period, which really go from the time of the Exodus, as they left Egypt, um, through to the end of this period we're just talking about this morning. Uh, and this is where we're, we're focusing right there as they've come back from the captivity um, in Babylon. So with that, let's uh, go straight into chapter 2, and uh, we'll pick it up from there. We read first 1 of chapter 2. In the seventh month... In the one and twentieth day, the twenty-first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying... Now, before we go on to look at what he says, just to remind you, chapter 1, Haggai comes to the leaders of the nation first, of whom uh, we find that Zerubbabel was entitled to be king. He was of the royal line. He could have sat on the throne. But they'd been this blood curse on Jeconiah, and God had said none of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel. Well, exactly as the Lord had said, Zerubbabel is appointed by Cyrus... Uh, Persian king as to, to be governor in the land, but that's all he is. He's just governor. And the word of the Lord comes from well, to Haggai, to the leaders of the nation, asking them what they're doing. They'd come back with this express um, decree that Cyrus had given, that God had engineered, to rebuild the temple. And nothing had happened. They'd started the work, but then they'd been intimidated by the Samaritans. And so they'd stopped. Nothing had taken place during this, this 19-year period. And then the Lord speaks to the people through Haggai and he says, consider your ways. You know, you've been building your own houses and you've even been using the material that was destined for the temple to make your own houses really nice. What about the Lord's house? And the real challenge to us is, you know, what have we been doing? The Lord's house is laying in ruins in this country, around the world. What are we doing? What's our involvement? Do we look at it and think the job's too hard? That's what Israel were doing in this situation. We were saying last time, we looked at those scriptures, the Lord's house is the body, the church. And at the moment, the church is in a desperate, desperate state. Just this morning, I I do it so it tries to get me out of bed early on on a Sunday morning, but I had, um, uh, what's his name on radio too, Um, uh, Alid Jones. And um, I mean, he really is all things to all men. Um, and this morning, somebody had, I'd missed who it was that made this comment, but saying that, that you know, vicars, ministers, and, and Christians ought to, to swear more, you know, because it would kind of take off the edge of making us so different, and, and we, we'd find we'd fit into the world better. 
It's like, well, actually, we don't want to fit into the world. And, you know, we're told that we should watch the things that we say. We should let no corrupt words proceed from our mouths. And, but a lot of churches are probably going, yeah, that's not a bad idea. You may have seen the report in the paper this week of some vicar down the south coast brought an awful lot of money to the Anglican church because he's just been marrying anybody they can find and getting people off the streets and all sorts of people that wanted to have UK citizenship. He's just been putting them together in these kind of sham marriages and... Uh, you know, they've obviously been paying for the service and yeah, the church has become quite wealthy again because of it. Well, maybe wealthy in terms of a, a monetary sense, but certainly not wealthy spiritually. The church is a mess. And we know people that are caught up in churches and systems where the word of God is not taught. What do we do about it? Do we look at it, these piles of rubble just as they were doing with Jerusalem and saying, no, it's too hard, we can't do it. And, and even if we try, you know, people might, might really attack us or persecute us because you know, we find that, that, that Cyrus's son, Cambyses, has issued this decree saying that the building work had got to be stopped. That hadn't been overturned. Well, that was chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts in this 21st day of the month. So we're looking one month later now. The Lord speaks again. And at the end of chapter 1, the people had got to that point of saying, we will do this. We will rebuild the house of the Lord. Incredible turnaround in the the mindset of these people. Verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, this is the governor, and to Shealtiel, uh, sorry, Zerubbabel, the the son of the high priest, Shealtiel, sorry, the governor, uh, of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jesedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison in comparison of it as nothing? What is the Lord saying here through Haggai? Well, it's kind of really, how good is your sight? You know, can the future ever be as good? These people were commencing this task, but there must have been that, you know, this is never going to be like it was before. They would have no doubt heard stories, and, and some of the old people may have even seen Solomon's Temple, one of the, the, the ancient wonders of the world. This incredible building that was, was decked with gold all around. And amazing, amazing place. And now they're starting on this, this project to try and rebuild it. And, you know, when you don't have any vision, it's very hard to have motivation to go along with that. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, Where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. And uh, my uh, paraphrase of that is where where there's nothing to aim at, people get sloppy. Where you can't see a future, where you can't see a purpose, it's very hard to stay motivated. You know, for us, does a lack of vision hamper our efforts? Is the fact that we can't quite see what God's trying to do with us here in this place, or wherever you are in your life, does does the fact that you can't see what's up ahead affect the way that you apply yourself to those things? Do you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the Lord in some places with some people could do all sorts of things, but, you know, here in Deal and, you know, we've tried things before. And Do you find that you think, well, you know, I'm not really going to bother worrying about reading the Bible too much because, you know, nothing seems to happen when I do. And, or do you find when you want to pray, you think, well, I'm not spending too much time praying because really I, I don't really see the results of it. This is the situation they were in. They were in this position where they couldn't see what was coming. And the Lord is saying, you know, is it because you can't see what's ahead? Is it because you're comparing what was and what you know? And he carries on. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Jesedek, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work. And look what we're told. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. 
it is again hard when you don't see what the result is to put the effort in early on. I've been in a situation personally with work over the last um, six months. It's been really, really hard. It's been really tough. A lot of pressure. I've been praying about it almost on a daily basis. I've done a lot of work in my own time on various things. This week, things have changed dramatically. I praise God. You know, had I have known what was going to take place this week, the last six months wouldn't have been a problem because I don't know what I was working toward. But it's really hard when you don't see what's ahead. And that's the way it is for us in our spiritual lives. You know, if you knew in, let's say, a month's time, the Lord was going to come back, that we were going to be taken to be with him, that the time of the rapture, if you had just one month left, how differently would you live this next month? How many people would you try and talk to about the Lord? How much more would you be reading your Bible and praying and making sure you don't do things that you know actually in your heart are wrong, but so often you frequently do? God says here to the people, work, get involved in my project. He says, for I am with you. You see, again, remember they've not been granted permission to, be, to rebuild here. And the Samaritan threat remained very real. Nothing in their actual circumstance had changed, but God was calling them to act by faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If God gave us all the answers up ahead, we wouldn't need faith. But God calls us to trust in him. We read Psalm 40 earlier. Blessed is that man. And there's a distinction because it implies that it's not going to be every man, but we have a choice. Blessed is that man whose trust is in the Lord. Matthew 17, 17. Jesus said unto them, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. You know, I find this scripture quite interesting because in, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, we find mountains are symbolic of kingdoms. Frequently that, that analogy is used. What is the greatest kingdom that we have to deal with, that we have to, in a sense, remove? It's the kingdom of self. It's the kingdom where we sit on the throne, where we're in control, where we call the shots. And that is the kingdom beyond any other that we need to see removed. And we're told that by faith, kingdoms can be removed effectively. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. God reminding them of his promises. (laughs) I've mentioned this before. Don McClure was um, speaking once at a church about the things of God, about God's promises and the way we can trust God, the way we never need to, to doubt or to worry. And at the end of the, the message, this, this, this dear old lady came up to him and was just saying about all the problems she has in her life and why she's worried about this and worried about that. And he was so frustrated because he just spent an hour talking about all these things of God, the great, exceeding great and precious promises. And he just said, lady... What do you do with the promises of God? And she looked at him and said, I underline them in blue. Sometimes that's what we do with God's promises, isn't it? We categorize them, but we don't let them apply to us. God here is saying, remember the promises I've given you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Again, he says, fear you not. We have this promise in Hebrews 13, 5 for us, where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then, Matthew 28, 20, we're familiar, where Jesus said as he was getting ready to depart for now from the disciples after the resurrection, he says, I am with you always. 
We need not to be afraid of what God is calling us into. But equally, we don't need to to slacken off because we can't quite see what's ahead. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God, here just giving a glimpse of what is yet to come, the result of this project that he's called them to, the ministry in a sense that he's asked them to get involved in. He's saying, look, I'm going to do some shaking. But there's going to come a time when the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house that you are now starting to build with glory. Starts to underline the importance. If they don't bother fulfilling their task, then effectively God is saying the end result can't happen either. They have got to get about the mission and the work that God has for them here. There's a couple of things here. We talk about the shaking first of all and then this desire of nations. Um, first of all, the, the shaking. God says, I will shake all nations. That seems to have a double application. Firstly, at that time, this is uh, comments from Chuck Mizzler, he says, the Ionian Greeks had been subjected to the rule of the Persians under Cyrus for about 500, sorry, about 540 BC. In about 501 BC, about 20 years after the date of Haggai's prophecy, they rebelled against Persia. So the Greeks rebel against Persia, bringing on a Persian invasion of Greece about a decade later. Darius was the king at that time and led a great army, but was defeated at Marathon in 490 BC. Darius' successor, Xerxes, marshaled an even larger army, 1.8 million men. The largest army ever seen. But in 480 BC, the Greeks scattered the Persian navy and defeated the Persian army at both um, Thermopylae, wherever that place is, uh, um, Plataea. A year later, the reassembled Persian navy was again defeated. As the Persian Empire began a gradual collapse, Alexander the Great led the Greek armies over the Bosphorus against Persia and defeated the Persian armies at Grantius uh, in 334 BC, uh, Isseus in 332 BC, and Arabella in 331 BC. After Alexander's death, the Greek Empire broke up and was eventually replaced by Roman rule of the Mediterranean countries. That was the shaking that applied right at that time. There was a huge shaking of the kingdoms, starting effectively just 10 years from this point. As God had said to them, there will be a shaking. And after this, the desire of nations will come. So, effectively God is saying, those who you now fear, this Persian government effectively, that you're worried about how, how you're going to be able to rebuild. And it was, it was shortly after this, actually, that they are granted the decree, as you'll see in a moment, to actually go ahead and rebuild. But part of their concern was what would happen. And God is saying, look, those who you now fear will soon be removed, but my temple will stand. I mean, we may be fearful about the world and the way that, you know, those in the world today put pressure on us to say or not to say certain things. And how it will affect us if we do. We need to understand that this world and the governments of this world are very temporary. But God's kingdom is eternal. There's a prophetic application of this, which we're going to come back to a little later in this shaking of the nations, because it's actually picked up in the book of Hebrews. So we'll look at that in a while. Because the Lord here again just says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That's some shaking. 
We tend to think of these things as being kind of metaphors. uh, Maybe in a while we'll we'll view them slightly differently if we look at some other things. This desire of nations. You know, there's conjecture by some of the scholars as to who this is referring to or what this is referring to. Some say it's got to be referring to Jesus. Others say it's wealth because the desire of the nations was wealth. Others say it's referring to Antichrist. Um, just going from um, one of the, the commentaries, they say that uh, the desire of all nations uh, could have referred to the wealth of the heathen, which seems to be confirmed with the gold and silver in verse 8. That's a possible understanding. Others believe it to be the chosen and the elect out of all nations. But the one I certainly go along with is what was held by the early Christians in the Jewish traditions, where they believe this is referring to the Messiah. Because the context here is that there will be this shaking and then this desire of nations will come and I will fill my house with glory. And that seems to be linked. But we know that this temple that was built was the one that Jesus himself came and taught from. Okay, and we're told again, as I say, the the prophecy here is that God would fill this house that they're building with glory. Uh, I think there's a double fulfillment that we see here because we know the first time that occurred, but we're about, I believe, in in the the scheme of things, in the governments of this world. I think we're starting to see it already, but there'll be a shaking, and that will lead up to the second coming of Christ as the desire of all nations will return for the second time. God says to these people, though, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. You know, there's two principal areas that we have of concern. They are the fear of the nations. What will men say of us? what they could do to us. And then there's fear of not having enough resources. Whatever God is calling you to now, there'll be two principal fears. There'll be, what will other people think? And there'll be the, can I do it? Well, God reminds them here. He said they were concerned about the Persian Empire and whether they could complete the project. But really, God's reminding them of what we read in Psalm 50, verse 10, where we're told, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills... God's not got a problem when it comes to resources. He's just reminding them, look, don't worry about the nations. There's going to be a shaking. Don't worry about the resources. I've got more than enough. And however this applies to your own life, where you are in your spiritual walk. And then the Lord says to Haggai, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says uh, the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace says the Lord of hosts. You know, they, they were still at that time intimidated. There was conflict, there was problems. But God is promising this incredible situation that will come about here. Effectively saying that what is going to happen is going to be better than you can imagine. In a sense, it's that in this place, one greater than the temple is going to be. And that's what we read in Matthew twelve six. That's what Jesus said. See, God is going to do this anyway. The people here had that opportunity to be part. The last time we, we talked, in concluding, about Gideon's army, the way that so often at the start of something, it seems hard. It seems like an impossible obstacle to overcome. And we said about Gideon's army in the way that so many of them, thousands and thousands, went home fearful and afraid. And then we have the 9,700 or so 
that go home, they're kind of, they're not really pay, paying attention to what's going on as they're drinking, their heads are just in the water. And it's just that 300 that God uses. And no doubt after Gideon has, has had this incredible victory over Midian, the others looked on and said, you know, if, 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 if I knew that all we had to do was stand there, break a clay pot, let some light shine and blow a trumpet, I could have done that. Well, we all could have done that. But the fact is, we don't all do it. And why? Because we don't all have the faith that God is leading. We, we tend to try and figure it out. And the others were looking, thinking, well, there's so many Midianites. You know, this is going to be, you know, what, 20 to 1, 40 to 1? We work on that mentality, that basis. But God doesn't. God had a different plan. And actually, when you see how God brought that victory about, it wasn't a problem. Anybody could have done it, but not everybody did do it. The question is, again, will you be a part of what God is doing? here in this fellowship, in this town, whatever our circumstances. God is calling us to stop building for our own sake, consider our ways, and to start building for him. In verse 10, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered, no. In other words, if I've got something holy and I touch something else, will that be holy? No. Then said Haggai, but if you like, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, which they offer there. So which they offer, uh, and that which they offer there is unclean. What is the Lord saying here? This brings to light this issue of holiness. It's a really important principle. Holiness cannot be communicated by contact. That was a point that was being made. Unholiness can be. We can affect each other in a very negative way but it's very hard for it to go the other. See, good work does not make us holy. And again, as we've said before, the issue of the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. That's the root of the problem. God would have us be a holy people. Last week down at Paul, we were talking about this, looking at the book of Acts and the way the early church grew. And so much focus and energy and effort is put upon adding numerically to the church. That seems to be our, our, our mission That's not what the Bible says our mission is. Our mission is holiness. That's what we should be focusing on. The Lord will add to the church. That's what he promises. That's his role. Our role, holiness. And we're told actually in the book of Hebrews that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days were when one came to a heap of 20 measures, and there were but 10 and one came to the press fat to draw out for 50 vessels out of the press, but there were 20. He goes on, let me just, just unpack this a little. You've been there, haven't you? You go to your wallet because, sure, you had a £10 note and there's only a £5 note. It's like, ah. Or you go to the cupboard because you're sure you had, you know, a loaf of bread left and there's not. It's mouldy, whatever's left. That's the principle God is saying here. You know, remember these situations you've been in where you thought you had enough and you've gone to it and you didn't have enough? This is picking up the same thing as you were saying last time. Haggai was saying in the first chapter. Verse 17 carries on. I smote you with blasting, with mildew, with hail, 
in all the labours of your hands, yet you turn not to me, says the Lord. If you remember last time, God was trying to get their attention because God had this wonderful plan for them that he wanted them to be involved in. All the time they're following their own pursuits, they're missing out. And God allowed them to go through a really difficult time until they got to the point of seeking and trusting him. And now we get to verse 18, where we're told, Consider now, from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Again, last time we looked at the significance of this particular day. It wasn't just a random day. It's like, well, yeah, let's just do it today. No, no. This was a day that God had foreordained. We find that actually this day is a day that a decree was made by Darius for them to commence this building work. We find that recorded in the book of Ezra for us. Again, why was this day so important? It was the day the desolations ended. Just to refresh your memory from last time. Um, In fact, let me just um, go on to the next slide and we'll come back to that. Jerusalem was put under siege by King Nebuchadnezzar in 606 BC. That was when Daniel and his friends were all taken captive to Babylon. 597 is when Ezekiel was taken captive. But at this point, another king is set up, King Zedekiah, well actually during this period of Zedekiah's ruling, um, up until this point, in 587 in Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, the third siege, Jerusalem is leveled, they destroy the temple and everything else, and that's when the remainder of the people are taken away. Now, this first period of time, 606 BC, starts a period of 70 years, according to a prophecy from Jeremiah, that was terminated by the decree of Cyrus in 537. The third siege starts another period of time, 70 years again, again prophesied by Jeremiah, referred to as the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, as I said, Ezekiel was taken here at this point to Babylon. So with that in mind, at the very time that the Babylonian army then was surrounding the armies in Jerusalem... Ezekiel is now in Babylon. He's been taken away in the second siege. At the point of the third siege, Ezekiel is told to record that particular day. So we know the day the desolations began. It was actually in the Jewish calendar, the 10th of Tibet, 587 BC. Okay, so we're referring to this point here. It's when this period of time began. Now, what's interesting is, as we carry on, Haggai... Now, in this point here, it tells us it's the 24th day of Kislev in the Jewish calendar, 518 BC. And again, if you do the maths, there's some issues with reconciling of the calendars. Um, but we can actually just do the numbers and we know we can get within a month. I, I believe, I was, Ron Matz and I have talked this through together, that we can get within two days. There are some issues with reconciling of calendars here um, because this is dealing with a Jewish calendar uh, as opposed to the one we're uh, familiar with. But from what we understand, we know we've got this interval prophetically, of 25,200 days, which, as we referred to before, is 70 years based upon 360 days. Now, the point is, at this point, this very day that Haggai is uh, prophesying and talking to the people, saying this day the foundation is laid, is that it marks the termination of this desolation of Jerusalem. I just want to very quickly go off on a brief tangent, because I just think it could be instructive and helpful. Because we've mentioned before that when we're looking at prophetic years and prophecy and these things, the Bible deals with a 360-day year. 
Okay? Um, we have covered this very lightly before, but I thought it would be just beneficial to go over it again. Okay, so let's look at this. Why, why does the Bible use 360-day years? Well, it's interesting to note that all ancient calendars seem to be based on 360-day years. The Assyrians, Chaldeans, Egyptians, Hebrews, Persians, Greeks, Phoenicians, Chinese, Mayans, Hindus, Carthaginians, Etruscans, uh, Teutons, and various others. Okay, and we've got records of these things. We also know we have 360 degrees in a circle. Anybody ask the question, why? And obviously from that we get 60 minutes in the hour, and etc., uh, 60 seconds per minute. There are also 360 icons in the Gnostic genie, um, and the same uh, 360 gods in the theology of the Greek Orpheus, 360 idols in the palace of uh, Diary in Japan, and 360 statues surrounding the whole bowl in Arabia. Uh, interestingly, the reason they had these 360 gods in all of these different pagan religions and things is because they have one for each day of the year. And that last one, incidentally, Muhammad, from history we understand, went and actually destroyed 359 and left just one, um, known as the moon god at the time, who's become known as Allah. The Bible uses this 360-day year in various prophecies. In Genesis, we see it in regard to the flood. In Daniel, we find it used there, in the Daniel's prophecy, chapter 9, also in chapter 12. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, we find as well that God uses this. So we have a biblical precedent for this 360-day uh, year, as it were. Now, what's interesting is that all ancient calendars changed after 701 BC. The uh, second king of Rome, Numa Pompilius, um, he added five days to the calendar to try and reconcile it at this point. Hezekiah, the king in Israel, or king of Judah at that time, adds a month, uh, sorry, a month seven times every 19 years, a peculiar way. And there's all sorts of conjecture by the rabbis as to why Hezekiah did this. What nobody seems to ask is, why? Why did you need at that point to reconcile the calendars? Well, a conjecture, but supported by an awful lot of facts, is proposed in a book called Catastrophism in the Old Testament by a chap called uh, Donald Patton and Robert Hatch. What they noticed was that as we go through history, there's all sorts of strange events, cataclysmic events, we could almost say, that occur on a specific sequence and interval of events. And they map numerous biblical things. You see there the flood of Noah... Uh, Tower of Babel being destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, um, Exodus plagues, the long day of Joshua, uh, Caesarea's account that we see in the book of Judges, Gideon, uh, the situation we mentioned earlier, Elijah on Mount Carmel, the Joel Amos catastrophe, this earthquake we read about in scripture, and then finally in March 701, uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian um, chap who's coming against Israel trying to take the, the, the southern kingdom, comes up and taunts Hezekiah, and 185,000 Assyrians die. What you notice there, if you look at these dates, is we have effectively October or March in all of these occasions. Donald Patton, Robert Hatch, and also another friend of theirs, this chap called Lawrence Steinhauer, um, very qualified people. Patton was an astronomer, uh, an author. Hatch was a senior engineer of the space division of Boeing, and Steinhauer taught orbital mechanics at Harvard. So these aren't just people that, that were bored one day and decided to come up with a theory. Uh, these have got some serious background in this area. They noted that these catastrophes that have happened occur every 54 
or 108 years on a regular cycle. So they built a computer model based on orbital resonance. Don't worry too much about orbital resonance for now. Um, But they postulated that Earth and Mars, planet Mars, both had synchronous orbits. What do we mean by that? Well, today Earth is on a 365.25 day orbit around the Sun. But the evidence and the conjecture, both from ancient history and from this model that they um, built, etc., was that it used to be on a 360-day orbit. Mars, today, is on a 687-day orbit around the Sun, but the suggestion was it was once slightly longer than that, on 720 days. Now, where this actually applies is that if you look at the orbit of the Earth, the orbit of Mars, it means that on two occasions during the year, one in the spring in March, and one in October, as Mars is coming on its orbit around the Sun, and Earth is going on its orbit, on two occasions they would come very, very close to each other, far, far closer than we see today. If I asked you to list a whole load of things that you fear, things that you're worried about, I could be pretty sure that there would be one thing that wouldn't be on that list, and that thing would be the planet Mars. None of us have got any particular hang-ups or problems with the planet Mars. In fact, if we were to go out at night and I were to ask you to point out the planet Mars, hardly any one of us, if any one of us at all, would be able to do it. Unless you've got somebody particularly interested in astronomy, no one really knows which one of those little dots out there is the planet Mars. But if this conjecture were true, the results that um, Hatch and uh, Donald Patton, etc., came up with Things like this. The long day of Joshua, just take one example. We're told that from Scripture we had a third of a million men at Beth Horon all gathered together. This would have been October 25th, 1404 BC. At that time, if this model is correct, Mars would have been on this polar pass coming around at about 70,000 miles from the Earth. Now, that may seem an awful long way to us, but it would appear to rise on the horizon about 50 times the size of the moon. If you woke up in the morning, you looked out and saw that, that would do something, wouldn't it? It would cause severe earthquakes, but not just earthquakes themselves, but land tides. We see water tides, but it would cause land tides, ripples uh, on the earth. The actual polar shift of five degrees is enough to lengthen the day. Now, if you want to dig into this, you can get their book. It's online, and you can go through it all in detail. People question, how could the day be lengthened, or how could the, uh, the, these things happen? Well, there's good scientific answers to these questions. What would also happen as a result of this, this exchange of energy between Earth and Mars, that meteorites would follow somewhere between two to three hours later at around 30,000 miles an hour. Well, that's exactly what we find recorded in the biblical text at that time. And this, interestingly enough, is also included in other ancient legends and folklore. No wonder ancient cultures were terrified of the planet Mars. There's also a record of a long night in China at the same time as this. So all these things start to to build. The planet Mars itself, we know, is the fourth major planet from the sun. It was named after the Roman god of war. Why? Why is there a little dot that we can't see so important that they named it after their Roman god of war? The Jewish Talmudic literature and the Apocrypha both actually list seven archangels. Now, this isn't biblical, but this is what they, ha- they believe and have. Uh, the Talmud actually assigns these to the seven planets uh, in our solar system, seven specific planets, as guardians. 
Uh, we've got the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus. That's at the time what they understood and knew. Um, the archangel they referred to as Samuel was assigned Mars. Samuel was believed to be Satan. So there's an association between Mars and Satan, interestingly enough. Homer, the uh, Greek um, 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 poet and man, described Ares, which is their word for Mars, as the bane of mortals. Quite strong terminology for a planet that we can't see and don't really worry about. But for them, it was a real problem. We have uh, Europacus, the Mars Hill, as it's known, uh, in Athens today. I'll show you a picture in a second. There's also something we'll talk about in a moment called the Epic of Gilgamesh. That blames Mars, the planet Mars, for the flood. Mars Hill in Athens today. Uh, you can go and visit. This is the place that Paul, we read in uh, the book of Acts, actually went and visited and spoke here. This uh, Epic of Gilgamesh is very interesting. It's a, a Sumerian account of history. goes back to about 2,500 B.C., Written on clay tablets. There's quite a number of clay tablets, and uh, they've got some of these up in the British Museum that you can go and see. Um, and on over a dozen of them, there are details about Noah and the flood. Now, the names are slightly different, but the details are so amazingly close that clearly they've been drawn from the same source, the information. One of the quotes on one of these tablets says this en- Enlil, which is what is Mars in this account, shall not come near to the offering because without. Reflection, he brought on the deluge and consigned my people to destruction. As soon as Enlil arrived and saw the ship, the ark, Enlil was wroth. Implying here that Mars, which is in the context of saying here is, is Enlil, for some reason was coming close, saw the ship and was wroth. Now we, this is literature, we don't understand all the, the, the ideas behind this, but clearly it seems to be blaming Mars for the events of the flood. And there's others, uh, comments, other bits in that as well that do the same. Almost all ancient cultures feared Mars. Most of them worshipped it. It was believed by some to be Baal of the Old Testament. Romans have actually had two days set aside to honour Mars, uh, what they call um, Jubilistrum, which was the day of trouble, and tumult, etc., which was in March 2021st. And um, Armalistrum, which was the day of alarm on October the 24th. Why those two particular days? Tubalistrum also coincides with the Passover, interestingly enough. Uh, Armalistrum coincides with Noah's flood. Just another interesting uh, point to note is that Romulus founded Rome in about 750 BC, about 15 miles upstream of the river Tiber. Why? If you just think about it, if you're starting a city when at that time a lot of things revolved around trade by sea, why build a city 15 miles upstream? Why not build it right on the coast? Ancient Troy was also rebuilt seven times, but none of those were a result of war. Well, some of the effects of a, a pass by of Mars, if this conjecture is true, is that we would see some in the region of 200 foot tides. Now, that could certainly be a reason why, at that time, they chose to build Rome so far upstream. There would also be land tides, which have a huge impact on real estate and could be a, a, a very plausible explanation as to what happened to the likes of Troy. It also caused meteor and boloid showers of up to 30,000 miles an hour. We read lots of these things in Scripture, and we don't tend to think too much about the, the cause of them or, or what happened and everything else. Uh, the particular situation with Joshua, as we mentioned, it could actually lengthen the day 
by changing the procession. And I mentioned that long night in China, which is at the same time. Um, and could this be why March also was la- named the lengthened month? Because we have this long day. And that's actually where we get the term Lent from. Interestingly enough. So Mars, from this model that they built, may have come within 35,000 miles of the Earth. But the last pass-by occurred in 701 BC, after which the orbit stabilised, requiring five and a quarter days to be added to our calendar. Which is why 501 BC is the last we see of it. So far that's all conjecture and very interesting, and there's lots of things that we can say to support that. But one thing that is certainly very interesting, you may be familiar with Gulliver's Travels. Well, before I just talk a little bit about that, there's all sorts of technology that's come across or, or come in, in regard to telescopes and things like that. Galileo, 1610, um, using his telescope, saw the four moons of Jupiter and Saturn's rings. And we get various other people that going through over history have gradually seen more as their telescopes have improved. In 1877, a chap called Azaf Hall discovered the two moons of Mars, which were referred to as Deimos and Phobius, which actually, interestingly enough, are named fear and panic. That's what those names mean. Now, um, they have um, a reflectivity um, of almost uh, zero. I think it's about 5% or something else. It's very, very small. Oh, sorry, sorry, 3% there. Uh, uh, Which means, whereas we look at the uh, the moon, rather, and it reflects a lot of light, uh, these moons reflect hardly any light, which makes them very difficult to see. In 1877, with this... um, these telescopes that Asaph Hall had developed, he finally could see them. However, Jonathan Swift, who was the author of Gulliver's Travels, uh, lived 1667 to 1745, wrote the, these travels. In 1726, when he re- writes this voyage to Laputia, he details the size, the revolutions, and orbits of the two moons of Mars. He couldn't see them. You see, it wasn't until 151 years later they were discovered by astronomers. Well, clearly Jonathan Swift himself wouldn't have seen it, but was he taking his information from records that maybe we still don't have or have been lost in the sands of time? But somehow that information had passed down. If this conjecture is true, it certainly provides reasons. In Scripture, Isaiah 24.1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. We tend to see that again a little bit, um, kind of a metaphor. It's not really, surely that didn't quite, you know. And yet you start to think of these things through, and clearly all sorts of things may have occurred in the past. A little bit later, chapter four of, of uh, 24 of Isaiah. The earth is utterly broken down, the earth is clean dissolved, the earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Now that, I believe, is looking at yet future. I just put that in because I want you to realize that these prophecies may not be allegorical, as some people perceive them to be. They could well be statements of facts of things that are going to happen. That's the conjecture behind the uh, 360 day years. Uh, I just think it's interesting to have sort of an understanding of that. Now, just a very quick tangent before we wrap up this chapter. We have this 70 year period here, 
We have this 70-year period here. This is the period of time that the book of Haggai, where God is calling them to consider their ways, get on with the project that God has for them, to rebuild the temple. But there is an unexplained prophecy, or an not understood prophecy. Ezekiel actually gives us this mathematical prophecy concerning the judgment on the nation of Israel. This is what he says in Ezekiel 4. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build, uh, uh, build and cast a mound against it, set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. So Ezekiel's got to build this model of the city, this little small-scale model. And this is, moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel's told to play out this little drama and build this little model village, as it were, um, as, as a sign to the nation. And then we're told, lie thou upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon, upon it thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of days, 390 days, so shall you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on the right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Forty days I have appointed each day for a year. Very clear prophecy given as is here. And we're told the number of days, so we can work out the number of years that Israel, because of their disobedience, are going to be in judgment. So we've got the 390 days, and we've got the 40 days. Now, obviously gives us this prophecy of a total of 430 years of judgment that very clearly, in Ezekiel, are prophesied against the nation of Israel. But we know that 70 years are accounted for in Babylon. So we're left with 360 years of judgment that whichever way you cut it from history, you can't really account for. Not a specific period of 360 years of judgment against Israel. However, in Leviticus 26, we are given a clue. Because we're told there, but if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgment, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning argue. I'm not sure what that is, I don't really want to know. That shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemy shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if you will not yet, for all this, hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Okay? So if you will not yet for all this, hearken to me, then I will punish you seven times more. God says that Israel, if they don't obey, which they didn't, will be punished, which they were. But if after that they still didn't obey the Lord, which they didn't, he would multiply the punishment by seven times. We know that we've got 70 years accounted for. What do we do with that 360? That seven times is actually repeated four times more in that chapter, by the way, as well. The same thing is reiterated. Okay. This is exactly what I just said there, so moving on. So multiply the remaining years 
by seven times. Let's see what happens. Well, that would give us a potential of 907, 200, day, 200 days, if we were to work it out in the number of days, until the punishment referred to in Ezekiel's prophecy will be fulfilled. Okay, so we're purely taking exactly what Ezekiel said, we're taking what we're told, what we're told in Leviticus, multiplying what's left by seven times, and we're given, a, given us a total of 907,200 907, days. Now, third siege of Jerusalem, 587 BC. We've got 70 years, which is 25,200 days, which starts this desolation of Jerusalem, this period of time. That is terminated here. This decree of Darius, as I mentioned, is recorded in Ezra, and it's what we're looking at in the book of Haggai at this particular time. is this particular day that we've just got to in the text as we've been going through, 518 BC. If we add now the remainder of this time, so 907,200 days, which actually would work out to 25,200 years, sorry, uh, 2,520 years, it would come to 7th of June 1967, which was when Jerusalem was restored to the nation of Israel. Remember what this is referring to, the desolations of Jerusalem. This was to do with the city. And this was to do with the city. I'm going to show you some mathematical things that support this in just a second. We notice we've got a 19-year period um, here, back to when Israel became a nation again, just to mention that. What's interesting is if you apply that same period of time, you come to 537 to the decree of Cyrus, and again, the 70 years prior to that gives us our 606 BC. What it means is that whichever of these points you start from, you apply the 70 years, you apply then the 2520 years regarding the nation, the people, they lose their sovereignty here, they regain it here. Just as these prophecies in Ezekiel and Leviticus would suggest. If you look at the city, they lose the independence of their city here, and they regain it here. There's a program, and again, 19 years exactly fits there at the beginning as well. There's a program called Redshift, which you can buy, computer program. If we pop in the number of days here, I've actually done this already, but if you put in the number of days and you step forward the number of days specifically, so this is the dates we're looking at, step forward the number of days, 25,200, it comes to exactly 518 BC when, as we're looking at in the study this morning, this decree is signed by Darius, the temple begins. You jump then the next 907,200 days and it comes to the 7th of June, 1967. Now that is, I'll be honest with you, making an assumption that this start date, the 16th of August, 587, was the exact date. Again, we can get it down, we know, within a couple of days. That, to me, is beyond any question. That this is one of the most amazing prophecies we find in Scripture. We find exactly the same thing when we look at the 606 BC one as well. Um, the, The same jump brings us to when the decree of Cyrus was signed, putting that interval that we've looked at, the 907,000 days, brings us to the 14th of May, 1948, when Israel became a nation again. God is in complete control of history. Let's move on and wrap up the text. We read, 
Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as, the, uh, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth fruit, from this day will I bless you. God is saying, look, you know, the seed may not be yet in the barn. The, the vine, the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree, they might not have brought forth their fruit. But from this day, because you've been obedient, because you have done that which I've called you to do, God says, I'll bless you. What I've tried to do, the reason I've just gone through all that, is because I want you to see that we've got a God that is in complete control of history. That means he's in complete control of everything. He's in complete control of our lives if we will let him. And he's calling these people to give everything over to the ministry, to the work that he's called them to. And he's saying, you may not see the fruit yet, you may not see the result, but from this day, from the moment you commit to do this, God is promising those blessings. See, God had a plan and a purpose for them. And the people had an opportunity to be a part of it. Verse 20, Again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms. And of the heathen I will overthrow the chariots, and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Picking up on this in Hebrews 12, we read there, See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall, we not escape, shall, we, uh, shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now his promise saying, Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but, the hev- but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, and of those things which cannot be shaken, or sorry, that those things which shall, cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. God is saying to us, there's going to be a shaking. The things that maybe we hold dear are going. So how are we going to live our lives? What is going to be important to us? What are we going to put our efforts and energies into? Are we going to seek to build the house of the Lord? Or are we going to keep trying to build our own house? The things that will be destroyed. The following is a prophecy. I'm not sure when it was given, but it was recently it was, came through as an email with some other things. I just thought this was incredibly interesting. Some of you have heard of Lance Lambert, I'm sure. Well, this is a prophecy um, that uh, he believes the Lord gave him. And to be honest, whether you believe that the Lord speaks this way to people today is irrelevant because what he's saying is not contrary to Scripture in any way. But I think this is incredibly interesting. Look at this. He says, Do not fear, neither be dismayed, for that which is coming upon the face of the earth. For I am with you, says the Lord. I think that's interesting because that's what we've been looking at in Haggai. Nevertheless, I have a serious controversy with the nations. They are seeking to divide my land, says the Lord. The Lord, the land, sorry, says the Lord, the land that I covenanted to give to Abraham and to his seed after him, through Isaac and Jacob, as an everlasting inheritance. This I will not allow without devastating judgment upon those nations who pursue this plan. I have arisen with intense and furious anger, and I will not back down until I have destroyed their well being. I will cause their economies to fail, and their financial system to break down, and even the climate to fail them. I will turn them upside down and inside out, and they will not know what has hit them, whether they be superpowers or not. For I am the only one, the Almighty God, and besides me there is none to compare. Do they believe that in their arrogance they can contradict and nullify covenants that I, the Almighty, have made? 
Do they believe that they can change what has gone forth from my mouth with, with impunity? Is it my word and my decree that sorry, it is my word and my decree that has gone forth concerning the seed of Abraham? I will not be changed by man. I and I am alone am almighty. Do not fear. For this reason, a new and far more serious phase of judgment is commencing. Do not fear. It is I who is shaking all things. Again, interesting in what we've been looking at in this study. Remember that in me you have peace, but in the world tribulation. Trust me. I am shaking all things so that, which, so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. When all your circumstances become abnormal, discover in me your peace, your rest and your fulfilment. In this phase, the old and powerful nations will become as if they are third world countries. Superpowers will no longer be superpowers, but countries such as India and China will arise to take their place. A great company of the redeemed will come out of these two countries and all this change do not fear. You've only got to look to see what the Lord is doing in those countries to see the, the fruit of this already being seen. I know your weakness and your tendency to fear, but do not be dismayed at these things. In the midst of all this shaking, this turmoil and strife, there are two peoples that lie at its heart, the true and living church and Israel. I will use these matters, these events, to purify one and to save the other. Do not fear above the storms, the shaking and the conflict. I am the everlasting and almighty one. In me, you cannot be shaken. You can only lose what is not worth holding. I don't know what's up ahead of us in the days ahead, other than what scripture reveals. But I do know that it's time for us to consider our ways, to look at what really is important. The concluding verse of this book says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, says the Lord of hosts. And I would add that God is a God without partiality. I believe that that promise can apply to us as well, that the Lord will take us, that we will be exalted, we will give and be given privileges beyond that which we deserve. But we need to decide right now whether we're going to be building our house or the Lord's house. Because there's going to be a shaking. The things of this world will suddenly lose their value and lose their interest. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us, that you have called us and you've appointed us. And that, Lord, you want us to bear fruit for you. Father, forgive us if we have been building with wood, hay and stubble, if we've been building with things that really don't matter, the things of this life. And Father, help us to consider our ways, to look at your house that currently is lying in ruins. Lord, may we pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters. Support them, uphold them, encourage them. Lord, may we be bold enough to preach the word in season, out of season, to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For Lord, the time indeed has come where people have been raised up and just satisfying the itching ears, Lord, of those that want to hear them. But Father, may we stand true. May we not worry about the circumstances. For Lord, you will shake the authorities. You will shake the nations. But Lord, you will remain. Father, we just pray that you would lay upon our hearts what it is you would have of us, what part we are to play. And Father, give us the boldness and the courage. Lord, as the Jews did in the days of Haggai, with one accord they said, we will do this. We will rebuild the house of the Lord. And Father, you bless them. 
Father, this morning we just pray you speak to us, clearly each one of us, and show us what you would have. And give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to be the people, to be the church you would have us be in these days that are coming. For we ask it in Jesus' precious and mighty name. Amen.